0: Thank you, Roe, and good morning again. And um, this is what we're talking about this morning, the uh, gospel and healthcare. You know we've been doing this series uh, through August, looking at the good news and the impact that it makes in various areas of our lives. It's ever so easy, isn't it, to end up in a world where we do theology, if we want to call it that at all, We think that, well, that's a bit highfalutin, but we do our faith over here and the rest of our lives over there. And the two stay detached from one another and don't touch one another. When in actual fact we know that we live in a world where the deepest needs of people are not material. The deepest poverty isn't material poverty. Though material poverty, monetary poverty is a, is, is a, is a terrible disease in our society. The deepest problems, the deepest poverties are to do with lack of belonging, lack of hope. Lack of well-being, lack of purpose, lack of spirituality. That's why we need to bring these two worlds together all of the time. And that's why we're talking about the gospel and healthcare this morning. You probably know that um, a few weeks ago, it was actually on July the 5th, that it was the 70th anniversary of the NHS, the National Health System, uh, the national health system is an extraordinary thing. Founded 70 years ago, it's achieved remarkable success, hasn't it? You know, it's the first healthcare system of its type anywhere in the world. So it's a systems leader. It's changed the world. It's been copied by all sorts of groups around the world. But the extraordinary thing is this. When the NHS first came into being on July the 5th, uh, 70 years ago, in 1948... The best piece of medical care that could be given was a prescription for penicillin or um, a prescription for some glasses. Those were the kind of interventions. And within two years of the development of the NHS, by 1951, already a prescription charge was introduced. And if you had spectacles, glasses, you already had to pay for half of the cost of that. And the reason was, is that there was a huge underestimate of the real need in society. It was estimated, and lots of research was done, around the numbers of people that would show up at those GP surgeries on that first morning, July the 5th. But in actual fact, I don't know if any of you have ever seen any of the, the photographs, there were queues round the block Endless people started going to the doctors that no one had suspected. And part of the research around that now is that what happened was that mothers especially, but mums and dads, having to pay for the healthcare of their children would just make do themselves. Something hurt, they had a pain, they couldn't sleep, their back was killing them, but they just dealt with that, especially mothers, because the money had to go into the kids. But now healthcare was absolutely free, so everybody turned up. I've got a friend who's a a, a senior person in the NHS, actually, and he tells me this, that his mum and dad, uh, he grew up in Liverpool, This isn't a comment on Liverpool, this is a comment on where he grew up. I shouldn't have said Liverpool, I should have said Oxford. But actually, it turns out that it was Liverpool. And he says that his mum and dad, they went, because dentists were free as well, do you see? That That his mum and dad went and they had, he swears this is true, all of their teeth taken out and forced dentures fitted, because they could get it for nothing! (laughs) Why make do with your own teeth when you can have a brand spanking smart set, new, that you can take out at night and clean? That created a problem. And the problem for the NHS has really been this, it's phenomenal success. It's just so good at doing what it does. I mean, now, of course... You can get your hip replaced um, on the NHS. In fact, Philip, who's part of the the church, who who spoke about the uh, gospel and the markets, banking the other week, Philip this week had his hip replaced. Remember he told us he was going to. He's done really well. He's out of hospital now. He had his hip replaced. You can get your hip replaced or your heart replaced. You can have IVF or you can have gene therapy expensive treatments for cancers costing a quarter of a million pounds a patient. And of course, because the NHS, and I realise lots of you involved in healthcare here, has been so successful, what's happened is everybody lives longer. So the average age of a man dying, the average age, there's always someone who, 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 um, you, you know, proves the average is wrong in some ways, isn't there? You know, they say, you know, don't smoke, you know, don't drink too much alcohol and uh, do loads of exercise and you'll be healthy. And we all know someone who smokes all the time, who spends their life in a pub, who weighs a ton, they're as round as they are tall, and they're 108. <laughs> doing really well. There's always someone who proves every statistic is kind of not always true. But, of course, we know overall uh, what the statistics are. And overall, when people uh, retired, when men retired the age of 65, on average, they would live to the age of 66 and a half. So that you'd care for those people for 18 months, two years, three years maybe. But now people retire at 60 whatever they can, and they live another 20 or 30 or 40 years sometimes. Because the NHS has been incredibly successful. And because of its success, it's been crushed under its own weight. And this is beyond all the politics around it, and I'm not talking about the politics around it, because we all have our political ideas about where the money should be spent or not spent, but the plain fact of the matter is people are living longer, and the healthcare interventions we all receive are far more sophisticated than they were and far more expensive. So there's more people with more sophisticated interventions and you don't have to get a grade nine in maths to know that. That's an impossible equation in the end. It can't add up. And so this causes the whole of the health service to rethink. And those of you who kind of read these kind of newspapers, you'll know there's this huge debate in society about healthcare and where it's going and what it is. And I suppose what I said when I just made that little notice about um, the success of the South Bank School and the incredible leadership of Carly and all the staff who are part of, uh, of uh, that school and there's Pumi here, I'm amazed you're here, Pumi. Pumi was at Greenbelt yesterday. saw <laughs> in a field. I was at Greenbelt yesterday. Pumi was in a field, strolling round, and uh, now you're sat there. It's an amazing thing. And uh, and I think Alice is here somewhere. Is Alice here? Oh, there's Alice up the top. And so Pumi and Alice and Carly and and, and I'm sure there's more staff here than I know. You know. So and the church team. You know, the the hub team and all the energy and effort that goes in. Yesterday at Greenbelt, by the way, I did a session with Sir David Carter. He's the school's commissioner. He's the man in charge of um, education around uh, England. And so uh, we did this session on education together, to which uh, hundreds of people came. But there's a choir from Oasis Hub, Waterloo, a youth choir. Uh, Kids from the school and kids from the community... uh, And uh, it was fantastic, everybody listened to them sing, which is a wonderful thing, isn't it? A wonderful thing. So this success that I talked about earlier, that we know more about when we actually know what our progress eight was, and we actually know where we sit in the results, but this success, is the success, as I've asked you to give yourselves a round of applause, because many of you were the people who, remember, we had to, the church had to run in the Johanna School across the road, do you remember? We all had to move out, and loads of you lugged stuff across there every week, and we had that session there. Then we were upstairs, do you remember? We used to meet upstairs in the room, you know, that that room upstairs, and uh, with the sheep at the back, (coughs) do you remember? Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And all of that, it was a long time and it was a hard time. And I was amazed at how the church stuck together through it all. But all of that, all of this energy on the part of so many people goes into this holistic, integrated healthcare that's needed. As we move forward as a country, that's what we need to think about. I'd like to show you some statistics Terrible to look at statistics, but I bet you're excited when you look at these statistics. They're from what's called Public Health England. Public Health England is like a brother to the national health system. And um, Public Health England um, produced this research just um, last month. And uh, there it is. Um, Sorry, it's slightly small, but it's a picture, so you'll get it. Public Health England talked about what the contributors to our health are. So think about yourself. Just sit there and think about yourself. What contributes to your health? What makes you healthy or sick? You know? Ill. Right, think about that for a minute. Or think about us in this room. What makes us healthy or sick? Or the kids at South Bank School? Or the people of Waterloo? generally, or Lambeth, or Southwark. What contributes to our health? Well, according to, uh, according to Public Health England, 10% of our health, I'm sorry that's a bit, a bit small, so 10% of our health is to do with the design, of, to, to do with our built environment. 5% of that uh, 10% is to do with Um, The design of our environment and 5% is to do with the quality of our environment. So the design of our streets, our roads, our houses, our uh, flats, our living space, the parks that we've got or not got, the green spaces we've got or not got, 5% of our health is to do with the environment around us. And 5% of our health, 10% altogether, is to do with the quality. Because we might have a great green space, but actually if it's not cared for and it's kind of overrun and it's dangerous and you can't go there, or your flat was built great but it's now damp and mouldy, except if it is damp and mouldy, come and tell us about it, we'll help you with that, you know that, don't you? But um, you know, So all of that stuff, that impacts our health, 10% but, say, Public Health England, the next 20% of our health is to do with clinical care. 10% is to do with our access to it and 10% is to do with the quality of it when we get there. Now, what is clinical care? That is the NHS. Clinical care is basically your GP and the hospital. That's it. That's clinical care. So, 20% of your health is to do with your GPs and your hospital. 10% is to do with access. How close is your GP? How close is your local hospital? And 10% of your health is to do with when you got there, was it worth going? You know, what was the quality of care you received when you actually showed up? So altogether, our built environment and that bit equals 30% of our health. That means 70% of our health isn't covered by this. Here's the next one. Health behaviours. It's not rocket science when you think about it. 10% that accounts for 30% of our health altogether. 10% of our health is to do with whether we smoke or not, according to Public Health England. 10% of our health is to do with our diet and exercise. What you eat and how much exercise you get. 5% is to do with our use of alcohol. There's been loads about alcohol in the news this week. And 5% is to do with our sexual health. 30% of our health is to do with our behaviors. So there you got it. 10% to do with where we live. 20% to do with our access to our GP or hospital and what they can do for us when we get there. 30% to do with whether we smoke, um, exercise, eat well, the amount of alcohol we drink, and our sexual health. Big, big chunk of our health. But there's a missing 40%. 40% of our health is to do with this. Socioeconomic factors. 10% our education. 10% our employment. 10% our income. 5% our family social support, and 5% community safety. You can probably wrap those up together, can't you? Social support, family support, a sense of community, 10%. So look at that. What do you notice about it? (coughs) Why don't you, um, you know, in that very uh, un-British way, as Simon said earlier, turn to the person that you were discussing films with and say, what's your take on that? What, What jumps out of that for you? Turn to so one another and discuss it. <coughs> That's the annoying thing about me. I ask you to talk about something, and just when you're getting going, I interrupt you. So um, there's loads to get out of that, but just, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not going to kind of uh, ask you all the things you got out of it, because what you got out of it, you got out of it. But here are some of the big headlines 20% of our health is to do with the NHS. 80% of our health has nothing whatsoever to do with the NHS. The giant amount of health for any individual, any family, or any community is not to do with the NHS. And these are, if you like, NHS figures. This isn't kind of an anti-NHS spin. They've got a hu- the NHS has a huge, huge role to play when we are sick. I'm looking at Mark down there because he's a GP. So when you're sick, you go see someone like Mark, and um, I'm sure that Mark will tell you something. I'll leave him to. Um, I shouldn't pick on him. There's um, you know some of you uh, You know the thing about it's the av- as an average figure, it's said by the NHS that 50% of the people that turn up at a GP have actually got nothing biomedically wrong with them at all. Mark might say it's higher than that. But um, what's wrong is they're lonely. They go to find out about housing needs. They go to find out about relationship uh, needs. They go because of employment concerns. They go because of benefits. They go because they're depressed and they want someone to talk to. That's because the rest of what society should offer in terms of health is breaking down. People feel they don't matter. They're not known. They've got to deal with all their big, giant issues on their own, which is why I said, if you are flats, damn, tell me. Tell us. You know, we kind of work with this all week, every week. The point is... That the NHS is a brilliant thing, but it cannot possibly deal with all of society's issues unless we all step up. We need a radical rethink. Now, you may probably thinking, what on earth has any of this got to do with the Bible reading that Roe read to us? She read this Bible reading. It, uh, it's uh, from Luke's Gospel. And it's the story of Jesus and ten men who had leprosy. And they come to Jesus and Jesus heals them. And they all go away. And one comes back to say thank you. Here's the thing about Jesus healing miracles. You probably never thought of. The whole world debates whether Jesus actually did this or not. Did Jesus really heal people? Did he really touch people and their lives were changed? Did he really bring people back from the dead? And all of that misses, whilst we're debating that, it's a good debate to have, but it's been had for hundreds of years, it misses the real debate, which I'll bet you've never even thought about. Of all the healing miracles Jesus does, only three of them ever mention the name of the person. Well, actually only two ever mention the name of the person. Or Jesus' relationship to the person. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. One of his friends' mother-in-laws. You know, Peter says, look, I can come with you as long as you look after the mother-in-law. And Jesus says, okay, I'll heal her. There's a leader of a synagogue called Jairus. And um, Jesus heals uh, his daughter. And there's one other, one other healing miracle where we know the name of the person involved. Only one other. Anybody get any idea? I'll tell you, it's terrible. That say. Lazarus, who Jesus raises from the dead, the brother of his friends, Mary and Martha. But the point is, aside from that, every healing miracle Jesus ever does are for people who are unknown. We're not told what their names are. And more than that, big more than that, they're all for the wrong people. Jesus heals the servant of a Roman centurion. Romans were known as sinners. A sinner was an outcast in Jesus' society. And all Gentiles, especially the Romans who conquered the countries, were outcasts. And Jesus heals a Roman centurion. This this is a dictator. He takes a dictator's servant and he heals this servant. Leprosy meant you were utterly outcast from society. You had no name. You didn't matter. And Jesus heals these people. It might be worth your while to take a stroll through at some time, all of the healing miracles that Jesus does, every single one of them, except for the three that I've mentioned, is for someone who was an outcast, a religious and social outcast. Those are the people Jesus is concerned about. The church's job is just that. And Jesus heals these ten leprosy sufferers and one comes back to say thank you. But Jesus heals the ten. Our task isn't to get thanks. Our task isn't to be congratulated. Our task isn't to be handed awards. Our task is to serve. And our task is to serve everyone, everyone, absolutely everyone is in because of Jesus' revolution. And as you look at these statistics, you see the role that we have to play. I believe, I believe to the bottom of everything I am, as you look at that chart, the church in the UK is in the best position of all organisations and unions to make the biggest impact and difference. Because the local church in every community can be involved in education and be involved in employment and therefore be involved in income and be involved in family and social support and community safety and be therefore be involved in health outcomes exercise and diet you know we are as a church aren't we we need to do more this isn't to tap us on the back it's to say it's incredible the stuff we're doing in these realms but we're at the beginning not the ends we're at the beginning we can be involved in people's care for themselves and their health behaviors we can even be involved in the quality of the environment in which people live In fact, if you look at that diagram, there's only 20% of people's health in this community that we work in partnership with the NHS on. And the National Health Service actually isn't a national health service, is it? It is, of course, a national sickness service. When I'm sick, I go to the GP. When I'm sicker, I go to the hospital when all the health systems have failed i need to go to the sickness service but if i can manage and be helped to manage my fitness and my health in community then i'm in better place that's why you know where the choir's flicked away at Greenbelt as well, but the choir is amazing. People sing because singing is really great for your health. Even if you're one of those Christians who hates singing songs, you know, like, oh, no, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday who comes to the evening service, he comes to the evening congregation because you don't have to sing there, you know, right? Well, even if you don't like singing, it's good for you. That's the news. It's really good for you. It's physically good for you. It's psychologically wonderful for you. Even if you don't believe what you're singing, though it does, I suppose, help to sing it with more gusto, (laughs) that singing is good. The stuff, the health, the um, exercise, and the fitness stuff that Andrew does, you know, is uh, around the place. Font Fit, if you don't know about Fontfit, find out about Fontfit. It's incredible the work we do by running the local library, the coffee house being open as a place for people to come and sit and talk and meet. Um, Dick and Diane have begun a bingo session every week in the coffee shop and there's a growing number of people that come to that and that's incredible that people are sitting meeting and all you've got to do, I'm giving Mark a bit of warning here, is ask Mark after the service how much he thinks that that kind of intervention and the school, education, 10% is education but education leads on to employment. I know that there are young people in our community who perhaps would have looked forward to you know, to, to cleaning someone else's office. And now their, educa- their life opportunities are totally transformed. Education, by the way, isn't something you get at school. Education, real education, is what starts when you've left school, isn't it? School is just a preparation for the real education of life. But we're in the business of giving people that best preparation, aren't we? And we do all of this because of the model of Jesus, who constantly was engaged with everyone who was nameless, anonymous. He wasn't healing people because you know, I, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll do you a favour. You're the kind of person I want to help because I know you can help my disciples and our cause, Jesus pours himself out on all the wrong kind of people continuously for no gain. You can tell, as I've said before, the quality of any community and the depth of the character of any community or individual by the amount of care that they will lavish on the person or people from whom they believe they have least to gain. Or nothing to gain. That's our task. I don't know if you know that across the road, Hercules Road, across there, just there, it's where William Blake used to live. Do you know that? Yeah, William Blake lived in Hercules Road, and uh, of course, a lot of what he writes about his most famous poem um, is is, um, the poem that became, uh, 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 you know, "Bring me my bow." You know, I will not rest. Till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. He talked about the satanic mills. You've probably heard me talk about before. The satanic mills were along the South Bank. You can go and visit the sites. They were satanic because they were robbing people of livelihood. They were dehumanizing them. He was a really committed Christian who knew that he got to fight for people. Bring me my bow. People often joke about uh, Jerusalem, don't they? And go. Oh, William Blake was daft. Of course, Jesus never visited our green hills. <laughs> That's not the point. He was saying this: our task is to fight the fight and bring Jerusalem, the New Earth, here to be an outpost of heaven. Well, when he lived across the road, he wrote this. An augury is a um, an augury is a is a is a another word for prophecy. That's what he called them. Um, every night and every morn, some to misery are born. You wrote that in this wrote here. Every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. Bring me my chariot of fire. Bring me my bow. We will not rest until we have built Jerusalem here in this place. Um, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, spoke for the very last time in his life on May the 9th in 1912 in the Royal Albert Hall, actually. He was just about a week from his death everybody knew he was dying he was an old man and he would built this army of people to fight this fight to bring well-being integrated holistic care to everyone that's really why we do what we do not because of William Booth but because we read the bible haven't we and we caught this same vision that's why this church meets every day of the week. That's why a thousand, thousand five hundred people come through this building once you know September gets going every day. They come to the food bank and the debt advice service and for advice in loads of other ways, and into the library and into the uh, coffee house and into the endless clubs, the fitness clubs, and etc. etc. that are going on. They come to the farm, the children's center. They, uh, that, 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 just through this building, but they also come to the farm and the children's centre and uh, they come to Johanna's school and we are still waiting to receive our family of Syrian refugees. Uh, That's another story. They'll be here soon. We're talking to the government all the time. Why do we do all this? Because we know that integrated well-being is the only way. A whole person's needs met. When I was a kid before I read to you um, these words uh, from Booth. When I was a kid, I grew up in a a church where they told me that the church's job was to meet the spiritual needs of people and that we shouldn't be involved socially or politically because that was the job of the social services and the politicians. Don't drag politics into the pulpit. I remember my dad saying, politics never belongs into the pulpit. I respect my dad hugely. But it's hard to read Jesus without realising he was actually a politician. He wanted change. He wasn't a big preacher. He did stuff. He did provocative stuff. He did stuff that upset the authorities. He was on the side of the poor. He healed all the wrong people. And he occasionally stopped to comment on what he was doing. He did things. That's what our faith is about. So William Booth. He stands up in the Royal Albert Hall, which was packed. In fact, there's a recording of him, um, str- strangely, saying these words While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl on the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. Our crime must be, while women are raped, abused, trafficked, treated as bits of meat, While women are not allowed to earn a living wage, while women are put down and men are exhorted, we must fight. We have to turn this around. While children are trapped in gangs, where they feel their only security is to carry a knife, where young men and women are stabbed and shot. We have to fight. Whilst people are trafficked in through our airports and across the channel in the tunnel and employed in nail bars and, 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 and in those places where you can go get your car clean for next to nothing and never ask the question in front of your nose, who is this that's soaking wet doing this job? We must fight. And it's no good saying, oh yeah, but it's cheap, so it'll be okay, and I'm sure someone else is looking out for it. No one's looking out for it. Whilst this continues, we must fight. Where, While there are elderly people in this city who today wake up and no one will speak to them and no one will knock on their door and no one will call, we must fight. While there are kids in our in our in our community, who cannot read, we must fight. Where there are young people who do not know where they sleep tonight, let alone what they'll eat this lunchtime, we must fight. We've got to be shaken out of a complicity with all of this. It's time to stand up. It is war. We are in a war. For our task is to bring well-being and health at every level. Our task, your task, my task, is to give my life, you to give your life, the effort, the energy, the talent, the skill, the experience, the insight, the ability to write or to read or to dance or to sing. The skills that you have to ensure God's kingdom comes. And don't stop to ask, will they say thank you? Perhaps when in ten will. But Jesus poured himself out for these people because he is the God who is love. Let's pray. Father, we surrender ourselves again to you. We thank you for the opportunity we have of growing in our relationship with you in our discipleship with you by serving others, by laying down our lives. We know that we discover ourselves when we give up ourselves. We know that the deepest joys in life are to do with sacrifice and service. We know that it's far better to give than to keep on receiving and expecting to receive. Help us, each one of us, to understand, to explore what our role is in bringing health and well-being in the context of this church and everything it does in this community, in the context of our whole life, where we live, the friends that we have, the job that we do, the job that we could do if we found the courage to make the jump and do it, help us and guide us. And as we give ourselves to that task, We know that through you we also can lay down our burdens as we sang earlier. We know that all our brokenness is caught up by you and used by you. We come as we are to serve you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you, each one of you. Thank you.